I've been focusing in these days, trying to focus on those things that I feel that God would be pleased with as far as when I see him again, that he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I know that all of you here want to hear the same words from the Lord. And yet it raises a lot of questions. There's so many things to do uh, in the Christian life. And the question is, am I doing enough of this? Or I'm doing that? Or maybe I should do more of that? It raises the question. And so um, I was praying about this, and then the uh, Lord led me to John 17. And uh, we have the scripture for that. John 17, 20 to 23. And uh, the confirmation that God wanted me to focus on this was that the staff here uh, was focusing on John 17, did a great job of, of praying through and uh, speaking on John 17. Um, and also another individual I talked to he said, well, that's interesting because I'm going to use John 17 as a theme for my ministry. And so I came to uh, verse 20 to 23, and I, I want to share this with you because it it's very rich in uh, giving us some focus, I believe, personally, which we'll focus on, but also corporately uh, as a church. This is Jesus' last word. Last words are important. And these are his last prayer words before the cross. And so they carry a great deal of weight. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you love me. God is relating, Jesus is relating oneness with God as an element of love. And uh, the first part that he talks about, that, that all of these would be one. I, I think in revival, I'm so captivated by revival. The last series of sermons I did in 1994 before I left the church in Pengrove was a series on revival. I just could not read enough about it. I just said, there's such a hunger and thirst for the power of God. And I saw Jesus' revolution, uh, the movie. I was just undone by it because of the magnitude of what God can do when he comes in in, in revival. Revivals always begin in an area of national decline. And maybe it's because things are falling apart and people look upward. I don't know. But in national decline, we seek the Lord. And there's always, after revival, there's national prosperity. If you remember the 60s, how chaotic the 60s were. Some of you younger folks don't know that, but we know. Our soldiers were mistreated coming back from Vietnam and, the, and burning the flags. And all of our institutions were in upheaval in the 60s. And assassinations, three of our key leaders assassinated. They say, God, what, what's going on here? And then God follows that area of decline with this great outpouring of Jesus, probably the greatest, uh, greatest revival in our day. And, and it always is that way. It happens about every 50 years because about 50 years is about all an economy can handle without going south. God proclaimed a, a year of jubilee every 50 years because there's like a reset because of the greed and all of that, the, the mechanisms within financial cause have declined 50 years. So there's been a revival about every 50 years. We're due for another one. We're due for another one. And I'm so captivated by it. And every revival that we know begins with unity. This, 
This is what Jesus prayed for, that they all may be one. There has to be some moment, some experience, some people that are breaking down barriers and coming together to desire God. And he and his oneness then has like a starter culture. I kind of do it like a starter culture. You know, you start and then it spreads from one thing to another. And an example of that was Azusa Street. When uh, William Seymour, a black man, in a day of division, segregation, united with white women and went through all of that, uh, you know, all the complaining and all of that during that time. And they held fast with that. You see photographs of William Seymour with, with white workers. And God passed up all the larger churches, all the bigger names in Los Angeles at that time, and said, that's a place where it has a starter culture for me to do something amazing. And it begins with unity. Any chance that we have to unite with others. In, in heaven, there's no denominational barriers. There's not going to be theological distinctives. And we're to pray as heaven on earth as it is in heaven, that we're to show that kind of love and that kind of unity that we're all united with Jesus. And he has a place to go, a place to start, a starter culture. I'm so captivated by revival. We need God desperately. I love our nation, and uh, it's a sick nation, and we need him desperately in these times. But I want to... Focus more on a personal, because if we all start a personal revival, then that leads to a corporate revival and extends beyond the nation there. Where Jesus says, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you love me. And he says that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that you, they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And he's, he may be referring to himself in relationship with the Trinity there as the Son of God. But it might be that he is just a, a spirit-filled human that is, uh, is, is connected in with God and the Father. There is no place that Jesus went that he wasn't connected in with the Father. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. And he may say that, that these humans filled with the Holy Spirit, that they would be one and they would be united and they would have that same connection with God, the same kind of oneness that I have with you here on earth. Not a moment, not an event, not an activity, that there isn't a consciousness of God in that place. I believe he wants to, I believe he's communicating that. Oneness is so important with God. And that's what I'm focusing on because, you know, actually everything we do leads to oneness. When we pray, we're coming into oneness with God. When we hear his word, he's revealing more about himself so that oneness becomes deeper and more and richer. When we forgive, it's to, to bring back into oneness something that's been broken. When we reconcile, it's to bring relationships back into oneness with him. When we evangelize. That God says, I want to bring many sons to glory. It's not just to bring salvation to them for their personal benefit, but it's for the benefit of God that he is so impassioned by oneness that he wants to bring all these people out there that we meet into oneness with him. Oneness is huge with God. I believe one of the reasons that our nation has been so blessed over all these years is because the institutions that we have established in our country have all been patterned after God's oneness, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. You look at the family, husband, wife, children, modeling 
the three in one. A church, Jesus is Lord over the church. He walks in the lampstands of the church. He's in authority. Then there's a leadership, elders, deacons, the fivefold ministry, and then there's a flock, all working together in a sense of oneness, reflecting the three in one. And our government is so inspired, the Constitution, because it says God is the ultimate authority, and those who are elected officials, they lay their hands on the Bible and say, you can lie to God, but you, or you can lie to man, but you can't lie to God. And the understanding that those elected officials would be answerable to God, great authority. And then there's the people represented by those elected officials who are choosing those elected officials. This is a beautiful expression of God's oneness. And don't, don't listen to the rhetoric that the Constitution is a relic or outdated. It survived us through the rational period, through the Enlightenment. It's survived through world wars. It survived through the urbanization, the shift from rural to urbanization. It survived us through uh, the industrial age. It will survive us through the technological age. Don't let anybody fool you because it's representative of the eternal oneness of God. Amen. Elect when you vote. Elect people that support the Constitution and committed to it as well as to God. God's passion for oneness has always been there. It's the way he is. It's a reflection of who he is. You see this pattern when he created Adam and formed him from dust and said he breathed into him a breath of life. I, I like to, to see God going, Yahweh, Yahweh. It's filling him with the life of God. And so he says, we can work in oneness now because he has the same life that I do. We are one. And the idea was that there would be this partnership, this sense of oneness, and everything that Adam did, there would be a connection with God. And Adam would put his hand to the plow, and he would do the work, and he would do that. But God was giving him created ideas, and God was giving him, you know, the direction and equipping him. Quite often, Jesus used the metaphor of the, the uh, steward and the owner of a vineyard that the stewards did the work, but they were answerable and accountable to the owner. And the owner was going to check up on them. But that's a moment-by-moment. Moment. It's not just a distance like that. It's a moment-by-moment moment thing where God says, I want to work in partnership with you, and we do this together. There's always something that God does, and there's always something that we do in everything we do. That's what I'm asking God. No matter what I do, if I'm at work, I say, God, there's some things that only you can do, but there's some things you want me to do. And we often sit back and say, well, God's going to do it. God's going to heal the land. You know why he's going to heal the land? The way he heals the land is he raises up Davidic leaders. That's what he said. I'm going to bring Davidic shepherds. And he, it's up to him to put in the heart of people the desire to serve and the desire to serve in those functions. And one of the things that's happened is amazing is all the people that are just coming out of nowhere and running for office and all of that because they have a heart for the country because God has called them. It's our job to vote them in and to elect. That's the process that we have. If we don't vote, those people don't get into the office that God has put on his heart. Everything that he does is in a partnership with us. There's a sense of oneness. That's the way he's designed it. And he won't change it until Christ comes again in the clouds of glory and the clouds of power with the angels of heaven. Then he will take over and every knee shall bow. Up until that time, God works through human agency. And we have to do our part. And so that's my question now. Whenever God leaves me, he say, okay, what do you do? What do I do? He doesn't often tell me what I do. He doesn't often tell what he's going to do. He likes to keep secret counsel on that and surprise me. Mm -hmm. But that's 
the way he works in partnership. I love the, the metaphor of the vine and the branch because they're both separate. They both have different names, but they are one. And the life force from the vine flows into the branch. And the branch must stay in the vine in order to bear the fruit. The branch doesn't produce the fruit. It bears the fruit. And so whatever we do, we're in this partnership with the branch. God is the vine. And then whatever we do, his life flows into those things that we do. And the fruit comes because of his life in us, because of that oneness. I love that metaphor. It's wonderful. But we know there's an opponent to oneness, is there not? Right from the beginning, God had this plan for oneness and for partnership and, and, to, and to give dominion and authority to man to oversee this, this world and create. He says, I've given you authority to do it. That's, it hasn't changed. And right away, the devil came in and tempted Eve. I don't know if we, we can understand the pathos in God when he came to Adam in the morning, in the cool of the morning. And we know why, because he says, look what we're going to do today. I've got so many great things that we're going to partner in to do today. And Adam's not there. He says, where are you? The pathos, we just read the scripture, you don't read the emotion that there must have been. This plan for creation has been thwarted by someone who's caused division. Where are you? I've heard that voice. Steve, where are you? I bet you've heard it too at times, huh? God has a passion. We had to, the, the, we want to put those bullets up on there and that uh, we want to talk about the pattern that we've discussed, but, but the passion that he has for oneness. The word for devil comes from the Greek word diablo or diabalo. It's composed of two words. One is the word dia, which means through. A lot of our words begin with dia, diameter, and diatribe, and those kinds of words. Dia means through or anti or against. And then the word balo, which from where we get the word ball, which is something thrown or cast. And so the devil was understood from the beginning to be one who, who casts in between, who throws something in between. Slander will do that. If you've ever been in a situation where someone has spread a lie about you, you know what that does. To the, to the relationship. It divides the relationship. And that's what Satan does, is he said, he accused God. He said, don't, don't believe God. He's trying to put you down. You'll be much better off if you just do it by your, by yourself. And constantly we are uh, exposed to that voice that can slander God and say, you know, God can't forgive you for all that sin. You know, look at all the sin that you committed. He can't forgive you for that. Or look at all the failure you've had. How do you expect to really be used by God in a mighty way? Look at your past. Look at, the, look at the things you're missing in your life. How do you think God can use you? And these slanders and these accusations that are constantly coming at the people that God wants to partner with, have oneness, and do miracles through. You and me. The accuser, of course, works in our personal life. We know that. But also he's very active in our nation right now. Every time you see the division, we have left versus right. We have blue versus red. We have globalism versus nationalism. We have Marxism versus constitutional republic versus Christianity. 
cosmically above all that, we have oneness of God versus Diablo. That's the source of all of this division that we're experiencing. And we have to resist that and realize what's, what's happening because of that. Marxism, of course, is a huge tool for uh, Satan to come in and create division. All that we're experiencing, the, the putting uh, husbands versus wives and gender versus gender and separating babies from mothers and separating children from parents now. The state wants to come over. Karl Marx was absolutely committed to the state being God, basically. He's an atheist. There's no God in it. The whole pattern that God has for oneness that we've enjoyed is being threatened by that particular Marxist philosophy. It's a tool that is being used at this time. I know personally, I shared last night, I said, when Kathy and I were first married, we had two, I, you, you know this, if you know Kathy had an extreme personality, I have an extreme personality, it's completely opposite. And so after we said I do, we were both in shock, you know, at, at how each other was acting, you know, and, and uh, uh, the romance phase crashes headlong into the reality phase, doesn't it? And so after two years, I'd had it, and I said, I'm, I just have to get out of here for a while, so I just said, I'm just going to go to a movie. So I went to a movie. I wouldn't recommend it to you. Um, it wasn't really all that bad, except it's kind of a horror movie. But I want to tell you what the movie was about, and God spoke to me during that. The movie was about this uh, beautiful relationship that was being established between uh, this man and this woman. And it's just very pure and very loving, and you just, you know, you just were kind of drawn right into this great re- uh, romance that's happening, but the kids that were involved were demonic, and they were very sweet and innocent and just, you know, cute and cuddly, and everyone thought, oh, they're so cute, but they were really demonic, and they enjoyed, oh, thank you, thank you, uh-huh. thank you, they really enjoyed creating poisons and killing people they didn't like. So I'm sitting there, you know, thinking about my marriage, and here's this beautiful relationship, and I say, well, I wish I had a relationship like that. And at the end of the movie, and it's still very impacting because it impacted me greatly, that the, that the, uh, the gentleman, the actor in it, was lured by the children to have a picnic. And there they are sitting on this hillside, and the kids are being very sweet and all that, and he's starting to drink this concoction, and you know, the movie ends with that. And you know that you know, that he lost his life and this whole thing was ended. God really spoke and said, you know what's happening in your marriage, Steve? It's that demonic, diabolic move that's separating you two. I went back and saw it. I said, it's not just personality. It's not just differences of opinion and all that, but it's this diabolically Diablo, El Diablo in Spanish that's trying to cause division. And it's not just upset us. It's because he is committed to destroying the oneness that God has created. That's what he's after, is to dismantle that. And he'll do it in marriages, and he'll do it in families, and he'll do it with relatives, and he'll do it in your business, and he'll try to do it in your work. One of the great things that I've heard about using our authority, because God's given us the authority to cast out demons and heal the sick, and there's a, a Messing Arthur Burke, I think, was the one that came out on authority. And uh, what people were doing were really having, having hold of this. He says, you know, if you're feeling a lot of distress at work, he said, it's, it's not just, you know, things happening. It's, it could be El Diablo, you know, coming in. 
the divider. And uh, so take authority of that. And so a woman did that. She went into work. There's a lot of nitpicking and all these things, kind of irritation. And uh, he said, hey, we're just going in. And while I'm here, we just cast out any, uh, any uh, work of the devil at all in this place. Any irritating spirits, any, you know, uh, uh, afflicting spirits, be gone. And she said it made a tremendous difference in the, uh, in the attitude in the work. Someone else said, hey, I thought that was pretty good. So another woman did that. She did that at work, and she found out that the same result happened. Now, we know things happen in human nature, but there's often a different dimension to the tension because there's a demonic influence there. One of my good friends uh, who started the healing rooms in uh, Grants Pass, they had a very strong marriage, and they said every time that there was an edginess or an irritation or they couldn't sleep well, they would get up and walk through the house and just cast out all of these demonics, just say, get out of here in Jesus' name. And he told me, he said privately, he said there wasn't a time they did that that they didn't experience peace after that. We have to be aware that as we move in oneness and we're responding to the Lord, that there is this element. But we've given, a, given authority to recognize it, to see any kind of evidence of division that's coming in and cast that out and then deal with personality differences. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. See, when God created us, he created us with a hunger. That area in the spirit that he created us, it's a hunger and it was designed for him. And it's insatiable because there's never an end point where we get know too much of God. Right? And so he, I want to know more about God. I want to know more. I want to know more. So in a good sense, that, that hunger, that place where he's given, where he fills with the spirit, and it moves us on to discover more and more of God. When Diablo came in and re-separated from God, what does a man use to fill that void, that hunger? He uses it, the created order. And we call it using I use people, I use resources, I use power, I use control. And the problem is it's insatiable. So no one just stands at a certain place and say, well, that's enough power for me. Because of that insatiable drive that was created, there's always a desire for more and more. And so we can expect that if someone does not know Christ. And that's why that place has to be filled with Christ so that I won't be using things, but I'll be blessing the environment and blessing my work and blessing the family and blessing relatives and blessing the culture because God is in me and we together are doing these miracles in oneness. God's passion for oneness. When you see, when you see that, that God has such a passion for this, it makes more of a wonder of what he's done for us to know that he desired passion, he has such a passion for oneness with him that he sent his son to say, I have to break the barriers to that oneness. I have to send my son in human flesh to die, to break the barrier of sin and death that separates us. I want these people in oneness with me forever and ever eternally. What a passion for God to do that on our behalf. And secondly, not only to break that barrier, but to fill us with his own life. You know, when, when, God, when we get born again, when we have the Spirit of God in us, but when we have the, uh, the fullness of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in us, that's not just an endowment from on high. That's God's very life. Yeah. He's, he, that's the, the Spirit that animates him. He is Spirit. 
He says, I'm giving that to these men. So there's a oneness there, a spiritual oneness that cannot be broken, that will be eternal. And we share the same life together. What a concept if we're ministering and we're, we're dealing with family members and we're dealing with all of these things, we realize that I've got a life in me. This is not just I'm going to ask for the, God, just give me the power to get through this. But it's his life that flows into all of those things. That's the way he's designed it to be. Now, if you question that, Second Peter says this. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. <laughs> the divine nature. As you call it, I call it God's DNA, his divine nature ability. That's what he's given to us in the spirit. It's not just an endowment. It's a connection with God that everything that we do is, is, is infused with his life within us. And we ought to expect because of this oneness that why is it that God is near the brokenhearted? Why is he near the brokenhearted? Just because he has compassion? The compassion is born out of the fact that, that I know what oneness is and that person is broken from that. And so my passion for that person to come into that oneness is huge. It ought to be a motivation for evangelism, for reaching out and talking with people. God wants you so much to be in oneness with him that I have to tell you about Jesus Christ and what he's done to break the barriers so that you can be infused with power from on high and see miracles happen in your life. It's awesome. He broke those barriers. So how do we practice this? Well, one is that I think it's helpful to ask, okay, Lord, we're doing this together. It's something you do and something I do. So what, what is it you want me to do in this particular moment, in this experience, in this event, in this relationship? What's my role in that? And I have to trust you with the rest of that. One of my favorite phrases nowadays is when we do what we can do, God will do what only he can do. That's, that's a healing of the land, right? If my people humble themselves and pray and seek my face and forsake their wicked ways, if they do that, then I will heal the land. They can't heal the land, but they can pray and seek my face and do that, and I can do the rest. I can heal the land. There's a partnership again. There's so many reasons that I have to get off of that and get into something else. How he uses people. We have so many models of that. Another thing we can do is to realize that there's not, for us, there's not a separation between the secular and the sacred. Uh, we use the, those expressions, and what happened in three, 313 A.D., Constantine, when he made uh, Christianity the state religion, there was no persecution then. And so they started building cathedrals and chapels and you know, these magnificent structures. Uh, if you've ever been in one of those, it's just the, the sense of God's transient. They're wonderful. I mean, they just really convey that, and that was the intention. But the problem with that is that they started to say, the sacred is what happens in that building. The rest is secular. I can tell you, I would meet a lot of, a lot of veterans that come in and they say, hey, he said, I'm spiritual, but I don't have anything to do with church. And I say, why is that? He said, well, he said, on Sunday morning, my dad was shaking hands and smiling with people and raising his hands during worship. And Monday through Saturday, he was beating me. 
and the distinction between the sacred. In the building, I act sacred. Over here, I act secular. For the born-again Christian, that is not possible. I want to show you the definitions. you have those definitions there, Dave? This is a definition of secular. Denoting attitudes, activities, or other things that have no religious or spiritual basis. That's our idea of secular, right? God's in one church, but here, I'm going fishing, but that's just my secular, secular activity. And I don't think about God or think that that's an activity. Sacred, the uh, definition of sacred. Connected with God or dedicated to a religious purpose and so deserving veneration. The difference between those two is the presence of God. And if we have this understanding that everything that we do is filled with the life of God and he is with us wherever we go, I'm never in a secular moment because God is there in me. And if we have that concept that when, when I'm changing, you know, changing diapers at a table, that's a, that's a place that's sacred because God is there at that moment. When I'm having coffee with a friend, God is there at that moment. In me. It's not secular. One of the persons who caught that particular vision was a fellow named Brother Lawrence in 1640. He was uh, fought in the Thirty Years' War. His name was Nicholas Herman. And Brother Lawrence of the resurrection, he joined a monastery, a Carmelite monastery in 1640. And the problem he had in the monastery was that the other monks had three hours they could pray. So they went in their, their prayer room and they just prayed. And he said, I'm the cook. He was in charge of the kitchen. He was wounded in the war and he had, uh, he was lame for the rest of his life. But he had the responsibility of cleaning up the dishes and preparing the meal, doing all these secular activities. But he said, wait a minute. He said, I can't pray with them in that concentrated time. But he says, I can converse with God wherever I am. And so he would talk with God and worship God while he's washing the dishes and while he's cleaning the table, talking with God, conversing with them. And he developed that into an understanding that there's every place that we go, we can converse with God. And we have a relationship with him because he's there. He's one with me. He's not some distant, you know, paying attention to something else. He's there with me during that time and I can converse with him. And so he developed what he called the presence, practice of the presence of God. And you can read it. You can, it's public domain. It takes about 30 minutes to read his letters that explain that. Here's a couple quotes from him. He said, There is not in the world a kind of life more sweet and delightful than that of a continual conversation with God. Those only can comprehend it who practice and experience it. He said, I cannot imagine how religious persons can live satisfied without the practice of the presence of God. For my part, I keep myself retired with him in the depth of the center of my soul as much as I can. And while I'm so with him, I fear nothing, but the least turning from him is unsupportable. He was known for his peace. He was known for his wisdom. People would come to talk with Brother Lawrence about their problems because he was constantly aware of God being with him in that moment. There's another fellow. Frank Laubach was his name. He was a missionary to the Philippines. He did a lot with illiteracy. But he acknowledged in one statement, he said, I feel like my spiritual life is just kind of mediocre and it's insipid. And then he read The Practice of the Presence of God and he developed what he called, he wrote a little pamphlet about it in 1956 called The Game of Minutes. And in his mind, he was trying to think of God one second for every minute that he was conscious. 
That's a, that's a huge step for a lot of us. Other people have changed to one thought an hour and be a good place to start. But in the game of minutes, and he's the one that said they dropped the bomb, of course, on, in Japan at that time, and he said, prayer is the greatest force in the universe. Amen. To constantly be in communication with the God of creation. And what a, what, what a, what a gift of grace, what a wonderment of grace that he said, I want to partner with these people for all of eternity and see in that oneness the miracles that can happen during this time. I've used a little different technique, and I just say, Jesus and me are going somewhere. Now, I know your English teachers want Jesus and I, but uh, my answer to that is I want God to be the subject and me to be the direct object. So I say, Jesus and me are going uh, to coffee or Jesus and me are going shopping. It doesn't matter where you go. You're in conversation with God. And every moment could be a sacred moment because there might be someone there. You have a clerk. You know, you go to say, oh, I'm going to shop for some clothes. Or Jesus and I are going to shop for some clothes. I'll tell you what it does is it, first of all, affects attitudes. If I'm aware that Jesus is there with me, it suddenly changes attitude. And I'll give you another example of that. But also, it, it, it makes me sense of the fact that I might be moving into a relationship with someone who needs a word of knowledge or needs a word or, or to testify to someone. And it's very easy to get in a mode where you say, well, I need to do this, I need to do that, and this is, okay, I did that, now I need to go over and get my hair cut, now I need to pick up this at the laundry, and, and we just do, 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 and realize that we're passing people that God says, I am in you to take a moment and talk with these people and spread the word to them. So I'm practicing this, and I said, Jesus and me are going to get some gas. That sounds silly, doesn't it? Okay, Jesus and me are going to get some gas. So right away, I say, I'm looking for some things, you know. So the gas station attendant, he's on the cell phone, and he kind of clicks it off and comes over and asks what I want. And I said, and so he put the nozzle in the tank, and I said, you know, I just have to tell you something. I said, Jesus loves you, and she's going to be all right. Just at that moment. And he didn't say much. He just stopped. He paused. He said, thank you for that. I don't know. It's up to God. I just did my part. But if I wasn't conscious of God at that time, being with me at that time, would have missed that opportunity. I'll give you one more story. Um, often when I go to work, I'll confess that I would rather sleep in. There's a lot of things I'd rather do than go to work on many days, Right. And so I get up, and so I might be a little grumpy, a little edgy, and say, oh, i got to do this and that. And so I've learned to sing a little song, you know, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation so rich and free. So I just sing that to get me elevated a little bit and uh, try to get in a, in a good frame. So this, uh, last, this uh, last May, this month, is Nurses Appreciation Month. And um, three years ago, prior to COVID, what we did over the VA was we had a blessing of the hands. And so that was to wash their hands and to, you know, give them a blessing and thank them for, appreciate for their service, okay? Three years ago, we did it. We were in some back room there, and only two people came in two hours. We did it from 10 to 12. And so here we are. We're going to do it again on this last Tuesday, and I'm thinking, oh, I don't know if I want to sit in a room, you know, all by myself for two hours, so I'm doing this. And uh, then I sing my little song and try to get in the right frame of mind. Jesus and I are going to work. And so 
we did something different. We put it all in carts, and we said, let's go to them. And so, so we put the, the solution on a cart and, uh, you know, went through the halls and we'd go into the different places and they're busy, you know. And uh, we said, uh, we'd just like to thank you and bless your hands. And over 20 people were blessed by that, took time for that. We asked them, because we have to be sensitive to it over at the VA, we said, is it okay if we pray in Jesus' name? Not one person said no. We prayed. Rather than bless them, we just prayed. We got words of knowledge. We prayed for one girl, and I said, it just seems to me there's something physically going on. Can we pray for that? She said, yeah. I said, I'm checking my heart for AFib. I said, can I pray for that? Yeah. And as we wheeled the cart out, two ladies came, and they followed us out. And she said, we just want to know if you'll pray for this girl's baby. She's 13 weeks along, and she'd like to bless the baby. So we prayed for the baby, had some words of calling for the baby, what God was doing in that. If, if it wasn't conscious of Jesus doing it, it'd just be a task. It'd just be a secular activity. But it becomes sacred if we practice the presence and link in with him. Whatever we do, wherever we go, there is no such thing as a secular activity. I don't care if you're going shopping, if you're getting your hair done, if you're getting your nails done, if you're going fishing, uh, whatever it is. Going out for a ride, you can talk with God right there in the car. And you know what else it does? One of the things we feel guilty about is we, when we set priorities, we often do that according to time. Right? Like, okay, I know this is a priority because I'm spending more time doing this than that. But that's impossible to do with all of our priorities. If you're working a 40, 40 hour work week, you can't spend 50 hours alone with God and 40 hours with your mate. You just can't do it. There's not enough hours in the day. But this means I can prioritize God every moment of every day and I, I need those special times with Him, of course. You know, Jesus did too. I need those times where I'm just alone with the Father. But throughout the course of the day, every event becomes an opportunity to pray with God. And so he's my priority. So I don't have to worry so much about, oh, gosh, did I have that three hours this week? Or did I have that two hours with him? Or I missed my devotional time. As we can talk with him every moment throughout the day, whatever we do. It's an amazing thing that God has done. So I would just encourage you to practice the presence of God and avail yourself of these opportunities. God is preparing people in these dark times to hear a word, a positive word, to hear about Christ, to hear about God, and to break through the darkness that's in their life. They're very open. And we have this opportunity to bless God and to see him work in oneness with us. Oneness is a key with God. And I would say probably it's the most important thing for him. Everything that he has done is that we might be one with him and enjoy him moment by moment by moment by moment, inseparably for the rest of the time. With the relationship, there's separation. I can have a good relationship with someone, and I may not see him for several days, and say, hey, let's get together and get some coffee. I'm still in relationship with him. With oneness, there is no separation. I'm just constantly in contact with God. Can we just pray for a couple of things? Can we just stand? Is that all right, Dan, if we have people just stand for a moment? And I, I really believe there's people here that have just been lied to by the, the enemy as to what's not going to happen and why you can't do this. And, and we just want to break that off. And let's just affirm that. And also, if any of you are experiencing the work of Diablo in your relationships or in your family, that we want to break that off and just we give us that authority to do that. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you so much. We are one with you. You've paid such a heavy price.
to bring us into oneness with yourself. And we cherish that. We honor that. And we just pray anyone that has been heard the words of the accuser or the slander to put us down or to demean us any, demean us any way. In Jesus' name, we just cast that out and we just say, receive the, the oneness, the glory of God in your life and the amazing things that he wants to do. And where Diablo has worked in relationships, Lord, speaking subtly about words of division, in Jesus' name, we just break that off of relationships right now. And we confess and we proclaim oneness in God. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you all say amen? Amen. 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 Thank, you. Thank you, Lord. What a word of hope. What a word of optimism and faith that God's with us all the time and we access Him, walk with Him. One with Him. Reminds me of Enoch in the Old Testament. He walked with God. Yeah, love that. If you would like prayer, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus still heals today. We have a team that would love to pray for you up here. And I'd like to invite you to come forward to get prayer. Any kind of healing, body, soul, or spirit. Any miracle you, you need. Let's, let us believe God with you. You matter to Jesus. Don't ever forget that. He with, he's with you. He loves you. He's answering your prayers above and beyond what you're asking or even imagining. May he keep you and your family safe and in good health. Give you ever-increasing revelation of his affection for you and yours. Go out and be the church, okay? The church is about to leave the building. But we haven't stopped being the church. Jesus threw you to our city and our world. God bless you. We love you too.